So how does science disprove Christianity? Let's get on with it. Um, so let's just be careful about not saying silly things. Uh, we, I take it that when we say how does science disprove Christianity, we don't mean something silly, right? Like science shows that there's no such thing as Christianity. Right? I take it that would just be a silly thing to say. Um, and we've got to be careful about what we mean by these things. Science is one word for many things, and Christianity is one word for many things. And I'm not committed to all of those things. Um, so I'm just going to put out there what I mean by some Christianity. Here's, here's some Christianity. Um, so here's a phenomenon. Anyone see the film Silence? Uh, no lovers of Martin Scorsese's wonderful adaptation of Shisaku Endo's existential novel about the persecution of Japanese Christians. Uh, no, I was the only one in the cinema watching it myself. But it was a beautiful film. Um, and it's, uh, here's Martin Scorsese talking to Andrew Garfield. Anyone heard of Andrew Garfield? Yeah? Kind of Hollywood type. Um, and he was acting this like Jesuit priest from Portugal or something like that. Um, fittingly, they got a white light to play this guy. Um, and he had an interview about something called the Ignatian practices, the Jesuit practices, right? That he had to get into the role and inhabit what it would be like to be this character, to be a, a Jesuit priest. Um, and what that practice is, is to, you kind of read the story of Jesus or some story from the, the Gospels, right? One of your blue books on the table is the good news about Jesus according to a guy called John. It's a book written in the first century. You can, this is a little English translation of it. Uh, and what you do is you take one of those stories and you read it and you imagine yourself into the scene. And as an actor, he was very good at this. This is what um, method actors can do. And they asked him what it was like doing that um, experience. And they had an interview with him. This is uh, an interview with his uh, experience of it. And they asked him about his upbringing. Was, it, was he new to it and church and all that? And he said this, films were really my church when I was growing up. Uh, as a young kid, it was movies and books. It was nothing remarkable, really. Just that's where I felt most myself. I felt safest um, in stories. Um, so he's kind of grown up in a sort of secular context. Films were my church, he said. I felt myself. I discovered who I was in stories in films. Um, in books and movies, I was transported into what he calls the inner landscape of myself. Um, and actually, I think that kind of prepared him to do this kind of Ignatian practice. And he said, I've been drawn particularly to stories that attempt to turn suffering into beauty. And I feel like I've been gifted and cursed I've been gifted and cursed with a closeness to some grief, the grief of living in a time and place where a life of joy and love is effing impossible. Uh, just for the you know, French people here, we've got to clean our language, haven't we? Um, so that's his experience. I'm drawn to stories where suffering turns to beauty because life and joy just seems impossible in this sad world. And I think that prepared him for this experience. And they said, what was the most surprising thing about preparing for this role? And he said this. He said, falling in love with Jesus Christ. That was the most remarkable thing. That was the most surprising thing to me. And the interviewer says he fell silent at the thought of it. He was clearly moved to emotion. He clutched his chest just below the sternum. And what he said next came through with laughter. He said, you know what was the most surprising thing? He said, God. God was the most surprising thing. Falling in love and how easy it was to fall in love with Jesus Christ. 
Everyone has given him such a bad name. So many people have given him such a effing name. And he's been used for so many dark things. And, I, and then I fell in love with him. Okay, so there's some Christianity, right? Not my experience, Andrew Garfield's experience. He reads this like book, right? And he falls in love with this guy from the first century. So I take it, Christianity happens. People fall in love with, Christi with Jesus Christ. Andrew Garfield did. You might think, how does that work? How does someone like read a book like this, imagine themselves into the space of like first century Nazareth and fall in love with the character called Jesus? How does that work? And if you're scientifically inclined, you might think, let's do some cognitive science of religion. It's a new field developed by Justin Barrett and various people. And you might think, okay, a neuroscientist might say, let's look in his brain. Let's do some brain scans, right? Any neuroscientists? Cool. Um, so you might do an fMRI scan uh, and look in, I don't know, someone's brain, Andrew Garfield's brain. Let's say, what is happening? Let's look for some neural correlates of, I don't know, praying states. Or what's going on when you're reading the scripture and imagining yourself into that space? And you might find that when you're reading the scripture or when you're praying, maybe parts of your brain light up. And if you're not careful, you might say something silly, which is, ah, that's what prayer is, or that's what's really going on, right, when people fall in love with Jesus Christ, and it's an event in your brain. That's silly. So I take it cognitive science of religion wouldn't disprove Christianity. It would explain Christianity, like the mechanism. How does that work? Um, it wouldn't show that there's no such thing as the phenomenon of Christianity. It would somehow explain how it works, how it happens. Uh, right. So we've got to be careful with things like neuroscientific explanations because, look, your brain lights up when you eat a cheese sandwich. Right? That does not show that eating a cheese sandwich is somehow an event in your head. Right? So we've just got to be careful not to say silly things. Um, so I take it what we mean when we ask, has science buried God or has science disproved Christianity? We don't mean something silly like there's no such thing. In fact, I think we probably mean there's all too much Christianity. Maybe science has shown that Christianity is a bad thing, right? And I'm sympathetic with that because Christians say a lot of stupid things. I like this picture from Daniel Dennett's wonderful book, Consciousness Explained. Um, you know, there's a guy and then is my equation, then a miracle occurs and then we get this other thing. And he says, I think you should be more explicit in step two. Like, Christians say a lot of stupid things about science. Um, but you don't have to be a Christian to say stupid things about science. It's a free country. Anyone can say stupid things about science. Here's a wonderful uh, picture from the Facebook group, I effing love science. Uh, here's a good one. I, I'm surprised more people don't love science. It's fascinating. And the cat goes, do you mean spending countless hours collecting data and study, studying dense research articles, or do you just think space is pretty? <laughs> right. So some people often think science is amazing, and what they really mean is nature is amazing, right? You are amazing. Right? This world is amazing. Scientists study it because it's beautiful. It's stunning. It's amazing. And if it wasn't amazing, no one would be interested in it. Um, so anyone, lots of people can say silly things. Um, so we must be careful what we mean about science. Science can mean one of two things. It can mean like an activity, what scientists do, the kind of productive activity. Um, or it can mean the products of that activity, right? So theories, models, things that scientists produce in the course of that productive activity we call science. Um, and in the first session, I'm going to look at uh, 
the theories, like what science has produced. In the second session, I'll look at the activity of science doing science. Um, and it's worth saying that while no scientific theory entails, say, a theological theory or a moral theory, actually it might entail a theological theory, it, it doesn't entail a moral theory, but the scientific activity embodies an ethos, an ethic, you might call it, um, the, the ethos of the scientific community, the uh, a kind of way of life that is a profoundly wise way of life, actually. Um, so here's a couple of things that people say. I was in a debate in Exeter. I'm not a debater, but I was asked to do this thing on like science and religion. And, and the guy debating, I, I, he said some silly things. He said, one, no Christian ever has believed in the scientific method. That's just, I kind of nearly fell off my seat. It was invented by a Calvinist, right, called Francis Bacon. <laughs> um, see, what Bacon realized is we need an error-checking method to reform science. It's like a reformation project to save us from what he called the idols of our imagination. The uh, idol, the Latin word idola means illusion, right? So he basically thought that human beings are not basically rational, like Descartes used to think. He didn't think that um, human beings could just sit on their chair and figure out how the world was. Just go, I wonder if I was God, how would I make the world? I guess that's probably how he did it. What Bacon thought, and many people like him, like Pascal, and, and a lot of these scientific revolutionaries, said, you know what, human beings are not basically rational, they're basically irrational. They're basically more inclined to bury the truth than find it. They're more in, probably more likely to crucify the truth than embrace it if it doesn't suit their agendas, right? They're, if human beings are fickle, finite, fallen, fallible, weak, sinful, frail, people like us, right? People like Donald Trump, right? Who just thinks climate change is invented by the Chinese. Right, if you think people are more likely to crucify the truth than embrace it, if it just because it doesn't suit what I think the world should be like, then you're going to need an error-checking method, a radical, systematic, error-checking method called the scientific method to save you from what Bacon called the idols of your mind. He called it the tribe, the market, the theater, and the cave. I won't go into that. But market thinking can captivate your imagination, tribal thinking can captivate your imagination, and you need to get rid of that. You need to be saved from these idols, these illusions. And Bacon said we need a new method. So that's the irony. The Royal Society, you may know the oldest scientific institution in the world, starts with this Baconian motto, nullius in verba. It means on nobody's say-so. No priest, no prophet, no pope, no king, no flipping Donald Trump can tell you the truth in the scientific community, right? You need to see for yourself only the method of experiments is what we accept in the scientific ex community. Demonstrations through experiments. Uh, on nobody's say-so. On nobody's say-so. So let's not say silly things, right? Like Christians don't believe in the scientific method. Um, they, they developed it. Um, here's another thing this guy said. He said, anyone who studies evolution and doesn't become an atheist hasn't understood it. Again, I, I didn't have to do any debating, right? I, I've never done one before, and I never will do one again, but it was very easy, because he just said these silly things. It's, it's like the biggest facepalm in the world. So Darwin, right? Um, Darwin didn't become an atheist. Um, he, maybe he didn't understand evolution. Um, he didn't become an atheist. Uh, he was a kind of um, agnostic, but he believed that there was a God with design laws. Um, what lost his Christian faith, the belief that God is some sense good and loves you like crazy, was the death of his daughter. Right, um, that was the issue for him. But you ask in his big book, 
natural selection. What do you mean by natural? He says, well, by nature, I mean the laws that God has laid down to govern the universe. Thanks for clearing that up, Charles. Um, so maybe, then again, Charles Darwin didn't understand evolution, right? He didn't know anything about genes, genomics, structural, anything. So let's talk to someone who did understand that stuff. Maybe the director of the Human Genome Project, right? Greatest scientific advance of the last 50 years, Francis Collins. Um, he wrote, in the same year Ricky Dicky Dawkins wrote The God Delusion, he wrote a much better book called The Language of God in 2006, where he wrote how he rejected the atheistic story of the world he'd grown up with and came to believe the Christian story of a God who loves us world like crazy and would rather die than let us believe that he didn't. Now, he tells that story in page 100 and wherever it is. He says, I knelt in the dewy grass and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And he says, as I did that, I've, I, I've never seen things more clearly. I've never seen things more clearly. He's found that coming to Christian faith has enabled him to make more sense, not less sense, of his activity. So that's his view. And it's not a rare thing. If you want some recent stats, hardly anyone thinks in the scientific community that there's a big conflict around the world. In fact, most people in the world who think there's a conflict is in the UK, and it's only 35% of scientists. So it's a minority. Um, so... There's a guy called Richard Dawkins who's kind of left unattended on Twitter nowadays, but he used to be the professor for the public understanding of science. And he's um, been very involved in promoting this myth of conflict. That's what philosophers and historians call it, the myth of conflict between science and religion. And he says in his book, The God Delusion, look, I know all these people believe in God, and I'm baffled. I'm baffled. I, I'm not just by their belief in a cosmic lawgiver like Darwin. But their belief in the details of Christianity, resurrection, forgiveness of sins, all that. Well, there's a phrase I like, which is better real confusion than false clarity. Better real confusion than false clarity. If you're baffled, it's okay to be baffled. I'm baffled very often. But if you're baffled, say you're baffled. Say, the honest thing to do if you're baffled, Richard Dawkins, is to say, or if maybe in, your, in this room, if you're baffled, say, I am baffled. I cannot see what these Christians claim they can see, namely evidence of the love of God. If you're baffled, the dishonest thing to do is to say, I'm not baffled. I can see that these Christians cannot see what they claim to see, namely evidence of the love of God. I can see that they're blind. I can see that their faith is a virus of the mind comparable to the smallpox vaccine and harder to eradicate. That's just dishonest. So um, I'm going to run through now a brief argument that this guy is right. Here's Stephen Jay Gould. He says, either half my colleagues are enormously stupid or the science of Darwinism is fully compatible with conventional religious beliefs and also with atheism. Um, and I think Gould is right. I'm going to offer a brief argument and a brief appeal. Here's the argument. And if you could take up this little book, uh, page four of this little blue thing, is I take it what, what people mean when they say science has shown that, that Christianity isn't true. They mean like the doctrinal content, right? Something like uh, the, what the Bible says, right? So here's John 1. Um, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, and I'm going to argue that, for all we know, that might be true. That might be true. And if that might be true, then the little number 14, this might be true too. The Word became flesh and has lived here among us. And we've seen how brilliant he is. So here's, here's the argument. Um, You've got to know that word, word, there is a Greek word, logos. It's this ancient Greek stoic idea of the mind of God. Um, Stephen Hawking refers to this kind of rational fire that breathes breathes order and life into the universe and makes there a universe for the equations to describe. He says that is, if we understood that, we'd understood the, the logos, the mind of God. And I'm just going to say, look, for all we know, that might be true. Here's Stephen Hawking. 
Um, it would be completely consistent, this is published in Scientific American, would be completely consistent with all we know to say that there was a being who was responsible for the laws of physics. So don't believe me. Uh, you can believe him if you want. If you don't believe him, take it up with him. I, he's right. It would be completely consistent with all we know to say there's a being who was responsible for the laws of physics. Completely consistent. Um, you might think, has Hawking recently changed his mind? He's recently written a book saying with uh, Mr. Melodinov, saying that because there's a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Well, hold on. Uh, let's not treat him like a priest, but let's just remember, even if that's true, it would be completely consistent with all we know. It's that there was someone responsible for the law of gravity. That's just not, um, it's still not consistent. If you think there is a problem, then it's Hawking versus Hawking. Who are you going to pick? Uh, I think Hawking is consistent with himself. Um, note that this is a very minimal claim. For all we know, John 1, 1 could be true. I'm not saying that many people could say more than that. Historians say that John 1, 1, belief in this divine mind was instrumental in the development of modern science. That's true. Many philosophers have thought that science would be impossible unless nature was ordered by that mind. I don't think that is true, but certainly Kant thought that. Um, many scientists think there are good probabilistic reasons to think John 1, 1 is true, that there is a mind behind it. But none of that is the essential point of John 1, 1, that in fact, all that there is came into being through this logos. Um, so I'm just saying, for all we know, it might be true. That's all I'm saying. And if John 1, 1 might be true, if there might be a mind behind it, a logos, a rational principle, then uh, you know, through him all things were made. Without this one, nothing was made that has been made. And the astonishing thing of John 1, 14 is that this one, through whom all things came to be, was in the world, and this one came to be flesh. This one came to be flesh. The word and wisdom of God has somehow been embodied in a human life. That's an astounding thing. It's an astounding thing, and billions of people have come to believe that. And by the way, all I'm saying is, if John 1, 1 might be true, then John 1, 14 might be true too. You might think that's not obvious. I mean, Newton didn't think that John 1, 14 was possible. Uh, he thought John 1, 1 was true, but John 1, 14 was false. In fact, he thought it was impossible. That wasn't because of his physics, it was because of his theology. He was an Arian. Um, Thomas Aquinas didn't think that we could tell by reason alone whether the incarnation was possible. Um, but nonetheless, not seeing that something is possible is very different to seeing that something is impossible. Okay? So if you think that you have a reason not to think this is impossible, I'm just going to challenge you. It's not a scientific uh, reason. I want to suggest maybe we have an imaginative problem. Maybe it's just hard to imagine how this could be true. What would it look like for the word and wisdom of God to be made flesh? I think we have an imaginative problem. But for all we know, it might be true, and that's all I'm going to say. Here's the professor of evolution at um, Cambridge University, uh, paleobiology, probably the greatest evolutionary thinker on the planet at the moment. Gould said if there was a Nobel Prize in biology, it would go to this man for his work on the Burgess Shale. Uh, Simon Conway Morris, he said this, look, Darwin dethroned humans. And as the abysses of geological time opened up to paleological scrutiny, the idea that we had any special role in the cosmic drama just seemed absurd, didn't it? It just seems crazy. So is it time to shut up and go shopping? Not so fast. It's generally a good idea to return to fundamentals. On the scientific side, is evolution truly random or is it a search engine for solutions in design space? Are there deep patterns? And how on earth do you begin to explain mind and consciousness? Some questions. 
And on the religious side, if one subscribes seriously, as I now do, he recently became a Christian, to the central tenets of Christianity, not least the incarnation and the resurrection of this Jesus Christ, then perhaps we really do have a part to play in the cosmic drama. By invitation, mind you. By invitation. So I'm just going to leave it with that. There's a lovely line in John 1.46 when someone says, can anything good come from this Nazareth place? I call it the argument from incredulity. If you believe that this is possible, intelligent people will laugh at you. And the argument is, therefore, you shouldn't believe that it's true. That's just a bad argument. If you believe P, intelligent people will laugh at you. Therefore, not P. Or don't believe that P. That's just a bad argument. Could it be true? Heavens above. Come and see for yourself. I can't do anything to prove this to you. You've just got to see for yourself. What billions of people have come to see is the word and wisdom of God embodied in a human life. He's amazing. I'm going to stop there.